Hello and welcome to another episode of the RPG Academy's Show and Tell. This is Tom, and as you all know, Show and Tell is a show where we like to bring on cool guests to talk about something cool that they are working on. And today, we have returning cool guest, Craig Campbell, and the cool <laughs> thing we're going to be talking about is Code Warriors. So, welcome, Craig. <laughs> Thank you, Tom. Um, it's been a while since we talked. I'm glad to be back. So, so remind people, what was the last game that you, what was the last game you did? The last thing I did was just a couple months ago was Interdimensional Shenanigans, which was like a little zine thing, kind of Rick and Morty style wackiness. Okay. That's I, I did cool. a lot of little, little bitty projects this year. Um, um, you know, like this Code Warriors is the first big game in a it's while. A- Big, it's a big game. But then I guess really the um, what was the last big game you did? Was that um, it's arguably Nowhereville? Yeah, um, that was up over 150 pages. Um, but that was also kind of a weird experiment to try to do a game relatively inexpensively. So it's black and white with um, like all the all the illustrations are actually um, royalty free photography. That was then run through filters and Photoshop and stuff. And so, like, it was super cheap to make. But, like, the last fancy, fancy game was Good Strong Hands. That's and that's been right. a, So that's been a couple of years. That one got nominated for a bunch of Ennies, too. It did. So, sweet. Okay. Well, anyway. All right. So, people know you, Craig. You nerd burger games. You, you, you make cool stuff. You've you've been to a catacon. Like, you've done all the right things, okay? <laughs> right. Um, so, but I guess, so, just to kind of catch up, I'm not going to ask you all about your history and everything, but, so, this past year, have you have you gone to any conventions? That's kind of the question I'm asking people. I've been to a bunch. Um, really? I went, I went to three kind of smaller local conventions early in the year, and then I was at Gen Con, Um where I had a dedicated table in the Indie Game Developer Network booth. Um, and I had like a whole team of people with me and they ran a bunch of games. We yeah. had like 20 events or something like that. This was like, this is the thing that was supposed to happen two years ago. Okay. I was planning for it in January of 2020. And then March of 2020 said, no, no, you're not going to get to do any of that stuff. Not going to happen. Um, so, so meanwhile, she- I made a whole bunch of other little games and supplements and things and so Very this year good. became the big one, yeah. Did you get to play Code? Were you running Code Warriors then at Gen Con doing play tests, or were you too early? Was, still? I was not. No. Okay. Uh, well, Code Warriors. I I did run. Code Warriors playtest like a few years ago when it was in its very first inception at Gen Con. Um, oh. And then it kind of went on the shelf for a while because it needed something else. Like there just there was something about it wasn't working. I wasn't happy with it. Um, and so I kind of sat on it until uh, – uh, here recently and what happened was like the good strong hands um game came out and that system people seem to really like that and it turns out people you know thought it was worth uh rule uh, nominations for best rules um so i was right in thinking hey maybe that system slightly modified works for code warriors so i ended up revisiting code warriors and kind of redoing it up in a completely different system all right, cool. Well, then, what is the what's the elevator pitch then for Code Warriors? Uh, in Code Warriors, you are a program. You are living inside of a computer. That computer is crashing, perhaps for the last time. So it is effectively the apocalypse as far as you're concerned. 
everything's falling apart. Everything's derezzing. Um, you know, there's, graphics are breaking down. Everything's getting weird and wonky. There's aberrant monsters. There's weird system hazards that are cropping up and wreaking havoc. And uh, you and your program friends have to figure out how to weather all of that. All right. So we're. I I saw you on Twitter pitching this game as like a weird mix of Tron and Mad Max. <laughs> yeah. Like so. Obviously, there's some apocalyptic stuff, and I want to talk about that. But I'm now gonna go back. All right. We're gonna take a, a few steps back to what you said. You know, like like a minute ago, you said that there was something missing from Code Warriors that you had to put on the shelf. What was it? Was it the rule set or what was that missing bit? Well, initially I developed it as my thought was to use the capers rule set, the, the card flipping um, yeah. set for, uh, rule set from capers. And cause I, th- I thought that that's a versatile system. I can do a lot of different things with it. And I, I kind of went down that road and I started developing, okay, here's these different program types that you can play and you can do different upgrades and features for them. Uh, and they can have glitches and things that happen to them. And there's these aberrant monsters. And so I kind of designed it all in like capers style in that rule set. So it was the GM is going to be flipping cards the same way the players are. Um, and there's just something wasn't feeling right. It was really one of those things that was hard to put my finger on it. Um, it just wasn't feeling right for the system. Um, and so I, I just kind of set it aside and every so often I re, you know, I found myself kind of thinking about it and going back through it and like, was I right to do this? Was I right to set it on the shelf? Um, and then, you know, a year and a half or whatever ago, I thought, well, wait a second, if I do this, this, and this <laughs> to the good, strong hands roll track system, I think that might work. So I started kind of down that path and, um, hit on a few key features of how it functions with um, the roll track system that made it much more interesting than it was going to be, I think, with the uh, the Capers card system. Uh, so, okay, so it's interesting then that you're bringing some stuff over from Good Strong Hands. Obviously, it makes sense. It got nominated for any for best best rules, but you go from you have games that are just like a complete like they're completely disparate so you have like a game you know where you're magic and mobsters and now you have a game that's very much like a lo-fi fantasy island and then there's good strong hands whimsy and everything and now we have computer programs all right (laughs) so you're obviously bringing the good strong hands um some of those some of those elements over but why make a game set in a computer well, I found myself like I'm always like brainstorming ideas. There's always ideas floating through my head. And so like sometimes it's just free association from I'm reading Twitter and like somebody mentions an idea and I'm like, oh, is there a game that does that? that? I'd play that game. That sounds like an interesting game. And some of those become ideas and they go into my big folder of ideas. And some of them actually, you know, I pursue them and some of them I don't. Um, and then there just came a point. I don't remember exactly where it was. It was, you know, four years ago where I was like, is there a Tron game? Is there, a, is there a game like Tron? Is there, other than like a supplement for an, you, you know, a universal game? Like there's probably a GURPS supplement that does this, yeah, right? Yeah, of course. Um, but like, is there a Tron game? Is there a Matrix game? Is there a, you know, reboot game? Is there a game where you play a, a thing living in a computer program in a, in a, in some sort of, uh, you know, simulated world and, 
I, I failed to hit on any like major well-known games. I mean, there's probably, because there's so many games, right? There's probably a handful of things out there that I'm just not familiar with. But like nothing really big. And I was like, well, clearly I can't just do Tron because Disney, yeah, big <laughs> good luck. Yeah. Um, but like then I found myself thinking, okay, well, like, okay, so you're a computer program person living in a computer world. What do you do? What's the game about? And I I just started bouncing around ideas between, well, you can do any of the stuff. Like, it could be a fantastical game, and it could have, like, you know, monsters and fantastical creatures and fantastical locales and stuff, but just computer rendered. That feels like a video game. Um, and that, that could be interesting if you found the right bent for it. But what ultimately happened was I started, I just started making a list of like, well, what do computers do? What are the things that I have to deal with on a computer? And I just started making a list of stuff. And eventually I hit, it crashes. And that was like, oh, okay. So like if a computer crashes and what does that look like to the computer people living inside to these programs, that's, you know, anywhere between Mad Max style wacky apocalypse where it kind of gets to a certain level and then it evens out and that's just the society you live in. All the way to biblical end times, it's all going away, everybody's going to die, what do you do with the time you have left? Um, and that's where Code Warriors was born. Uh, yeah, so if, are you, okay, so, when it comes to computers, alright, are you like a, would you consider yourself like a computer nerd? No. <laughs> okay, I mean, but. I, I know my way around, but I, I couldn't like take apart, I a computer and put it back together i couldn't give you i couldn't like sit down and have a you know intelligent conversation about computer specs and what's good about this you know uh what's good about this kind of memory versus that kind of what's good about this kind of uh, uh processor and, and this graphics card and you know i don't i don't know it to that level but you like tron but i like tron okay so all right so what are these themes of like these kind of Tron or some other the Matrix. What sort of themes are you bringing into your into your game then that are going to be familiar from these other pop culture things? Um. Well, there's you know, given that it's kind of an apocalyptic setting, there's going to be a certain amount of like, um, fear of the unknown. What's going to happen next? Like you're leaving your society behind. You can you now have the opportunity to reestablish that society or make a new one. Um, what does that look like? What happens when um, what was effectively a classist society where every program had a job and they all did their jobs and everything functioned more or less well? What happens when that completely breaks down and nobody has to do anything anymore? And you can be absolutely anyone. You know, if you're if you're the heroic uh, heroic character, you can go out and help people deal with the apocalypse. But there's plenty of programs that would be like. I can just like take over that town and make everybody do what I want and, you know, like live this luxurious life of not having to worry about any resources, just have people bring stuff to me because I'm tough. Like there's going to be that, right? So, you know, looking at like survival, um, power and control, um, but all kind of shaded through the idea of um, these archetypes of, of, the different program types that you can play, which are all kind of roughly analogous to different types of programs that most people have on their computers. It's funny. All right. So the, it, the computer programs that you use all the time, you know, you use maybe you're using, you know, using an Adobe program and it crashes. That's an inconvenience, but it's the programs that you don't realize you have on your computer when they crash. That's when you're getting like, 
blue screens of death. It's yeah. like the the ones that you. What happens when your firewall fails? What happens yeah. when like something in the registry goes wonky or the operating right. system gets corrupted or whatever? Yeah. It's, you know, your Windows search function. You know, you don't realize <laughs> what you need until you need it. Um, so then, all right. So what sort of, you've, we've got these themes, but like what sort of feeling do you want to evoke with this game? People sit down. What do you want them to experience playing Code Warriors? Um, well, it depends to an extent on like what mode of play you're going to play in because uh, the, the game describes, like like I said, there's basically three modes where easy mode is, okay, you get to a certain point, everything falls apart, and it's sort of Mad Max in a computer world, and this is the society you live in. And then there's a version where it's all going to crash and it's all going to end, but the players can stop it. Um, and then there's the version called hopeless mode where it's all going to end, there's nothing you can do about it. Um, and so do what you're going to do with the time you have. And so... You know, depend. It, it depends on what mode you want to play it in. If it's the Mad Max easy mode, it's more like just action adventure, right? Because there's ultimately no like full end to everything. You can you can play characters that are running around marauding, you know, taking advantage and and building their own little empire, or you can be the heroic types that go in there and sort of help the other programs that aren't capable of helping themselves. Um, so it's a you know, heroic fantasy style, but you know, slathered over with computer. You know, instead instead of being an elf, you're a you're a you're a proc um and you have proc features and you can gain upgrades <laughs> what's interesting too i was always kind of looking at the i've looked at a bunch of the art with this game and they it's and i want to ask you about this the artwork and who you used uh, but it's very colorful but it's very dark it's just if you know what i'm saying it's kind of there's this element i just think so there's a early picture in the pdf where it's like this it's bright colors but it's just like these three robots going down like a deserted city and it's just it's cool all right so talk <laughs> about talk about the art here because you do with all of your games you, tr you usually try to keep a very singular art focus yeah um the art is all done by um a brit named dan morrison um, he was involved back in the early stage with some concepting before it all got put on a shelf. And I was thrilled that he was still available and interested when I revisited the game. Um, he does this, all these very bold color artwork. And, you know, when I was thinking about what this game might look like, I thought, well, it can look kind of like Tron, you know, um, with some differences to make it, you know, different enough from Disney properties. Um, but then I was kind of like, well, you know, when you get right down to it, Tron is really kind of like bichromatic. There's like, there's some primary colors and then there's a lot of silver and, and gray. Um, and I'm not, I'm like when the graphics are cool and everything's moving on the screen, that looks really cool. The movies look cool because of that. But for a bunch of still images, I'm not sure how well that sells unless mm -hmm. you have the Tron name attached to it. So I thought, well, let's, let, let's go the other direction. Let's see what happens if it's really colorful. And what does the apocalypse look like if everything is bold colors? And the initial thought you have is like, okay, well, like the apocalypse does in realistic worlds where, you know, everything gets broken down and dirty and dingy and it's all, it's all scuffed up and gray and old. And, um, but I was like, that kind of betrays this really cool color scheme of these bold colors. So Dan and I worked out, it's more, um, a regression of the graphics where 
you'll be able to tell where in the apocalypse each of these illustrations is based on how detailed the buildings and the landscape and the and the characters are and then as it, the as the apocalypse continues the buildings become simpler the landscapes become like um like you know battlefront video game yeah. you know like the like it's just planes and and pyramids and cubes and things um and you start seeing things brick broken open and you see the wireframes underneath um, as the surface of, of, of the person or the building starts to break down or the vehicle and you see like, you know, you see the guts of, of what's underneath with the idea being that there's just glitches in, in how everything is being rendered and being created in this system that is constantly breaking down and losing parts of itself. Uh, it's very cool. So then the, let's talk about the core mechanic because people, I don't know why people care about this stuff. Okay. <laughs> so, all right. System mastery. Am I right? So, all right. So the it's a high level overview. What is the core mechanic of code warriors? Uh, you have four traits, um, body, mind, charm, and heart, and they'll each be ranked from one to four. And that is the number of D eights you roll for a check. Um, so you'll roll, you know, like one of, one of those four checks for anything you're doing, you'll roll one or more D8s versus a target number of f- between five and eight um, based on the difficulty of what it is you're doing. If you, if you fail to get any successes on your dice, um, you fail at the task, there's a complication, and you mark, on, you mark one on the skill track. Um, and we'll come back. There's, there's tracks. Um, if you get exactly one success, you succeed at the thing, and you mark one on the juice track. If you get two or more successes, you succeed, you gain a boon, so you do it better, um, and you mark one on the overload track. Um, the skill track, when that fills up, you clear it and you advance your character. The juice track is currency, so you'll gain points and spend points for various reasons. And the overload track, when you fill that up, you clear it and your character gains a glitch. Um, and then there's more to all of that, but that's that's the, the baseline of it all. Okay, so I'm going to jump around a little bit because I, want, I like the way this is broken down. And so I want to talk about these different things. All right, so I wanted to talk to you specifically about the, the economy of juice, all right? Because, <laughs> because there's been this, a lot of talk about how most economies in RPGs just break down. They just don't work because nobody really cares about it, all right? So how does how does juice work and how do you as a game designer approach buying gear and economy in games all right in the game there's there's two different ways to look at it because there's before the collapse um the way it worked was programmers went about their jobs they did their thing the system supplied them with juice and they were able to spend their juice they basically got paid it was sort of capitalism um after the the collapse begins they're no longer performing jobs and getting juice automatically from the system so you can gain juice through different things that you do you're still connected to the system and you get the juice from the system but you you gain juice from different things that you do um and you become your like you know by by getting exactly one success you become you kind of become your own juice factory like as long as you succeed like whenever <laughs> every time you succeed like that you'll gain some juice so you replenish I've, some i've always wanted to be my own juice factory <laughs> <laughs> um and then juice you know is it can be spent on 
for effect, you can use it, you can spend a juice to gain an extra die on a trait check. You can spend it for certain um, features and upgrades that require juice because they're more powerful, so you have to power them with juice. Um, but it's also your monetary currency. It is both. Um, and so all the equipment in the game is listed with juice costs, and many of them are higher than what you, your character can actually currently have on them at a at a time. But there are ways to bank juice in the old, you know, in the old world. There are there are there's equipment that you can put juice in, um, but you can only have so much like in your character's body, essentially. Um, and because the system is breaking down, and you are tied inextricably to the system, your character, um, your the, the maximum amount of juice you can have gets lower and lower as the as the collapse goes through collapse progressions. Uh, okay. So you start to have less and less currency that you can spend on abilities and dice rolls and equipment, which necessitates the barter economy becoming important. And that reflects what you usually see in apocalyptic stories where money starts to have no value because nobody really cares. Like that doesn't have anything behind it. That's a piece of paper. What do you got to trade? Yeah. So there's two things here. I like the idea of there being like a cap on it just because that's the problem that I have so often when I'm running games is that I feel like at a certain point, if my players are adventuring, whatever the in-game currency is, they wind up just having like infinite. Like yeah, they just do, they a just lot. do a <laughs> lot. So having this cap on it, and then also just having that cap reduce as the game goes on, it just becomes so much more of a mind thing with resource management that is pretty slick. So the next thing then is the overload, the glitches. <laughs> okay, so this is interesting because I'm like. Okay, these are kind of like abilities, but bad. But no, 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 they're good. Later, what is a gl- <laughs> what's a what's a glitch, and how do we get them? Right when you when you fill your overload track, you clear it out and you gain a glitch, and you roll it randomly. Um, and there's sixteen of them to pick from. Uh, yeah, random. I love random. I love <laughs> randomness in games. It's just like it makes sense for a glitch. Like you don't you don't know what glitch you're gonna get. Yeah. So. So, and you end up with the glitch at version one. There's a lot of versions in here. Upgrades have versions. Your character has a has a version instead of a level. Um, so you, you get the glitch at version one. And version one is always like cosmetic. It's flavor. When you fill your overload track again, you clear it and you will gain a glitch again. You can roll for a new one or you can progress the, a glitch that you already have to version two. Version two always affects mechanics. It's always like an actual drawback to game mechanics. And then if you do it again and you fill up the overload track, you clear it. And if you progress that glitch again, it goes to version three. And version three is the point where your character learns to harness the glitch. And it unlocks an actual useful ability. But you're you're still dealing with the, the two downsides. Okay. So, and remind us, remind me again, how does your overload track fill up? Every time you get two or more successes on a trait check. Oh, man. So, like, if I'm doing awesome one session. When like, you do just... awesome, you're like, look at me. I'm all powered up. I'm doing awesome, cool stuff. And the, and the system is powering you. It's, it's flowing all this energy through you, and it overloads you because you can't do that anymore because the system is breaking down. Uh, okay. Okay. And then finally, all right, the last, all right, the last bar that we're filling up, well, that has to deal with skills. 
skill. Uh, it's just called the skill track. You fill it up, um, and when you when you do, you clear it out, and you gain. You, you basically your character advances one version, so you gain advancement points, and you can purchase additional stuff. You can gain um, new uh, new specialties. You can add features and, and upgrades, um, and there you can also buy off glitches. Oh, okay. So then, all right. So there's this all these different elements of character advancement here. So I know that you mentioned that in the stuff that you sent me that it's great for one shots or extended campaign play. When we talk about campaign play, like how many sessions of Code Warriors do you see? Like this is you you've played this many sessions. You have done what you're supposed to do. I would say that anywhere in the you know, like people like to, you know, if you like 10 or a dozen sessions, that'll work just fine. You can do a complete story, pretty nice story in that. You could play 20, 30 sessions with this, um, assuming that you don't glitch out because you've gotten, you've gotten too, your version has gone up too high. There's something that I built in here. The second page, the first page of the character playbook, um, there's a spot for standard features. That's something that your program type gets every program has two standard standard features you get those all other features that are program specific and then upgrades which can be taken by any program and glitches those three things you can only gain eight of them total you have eight slots that you fill in your oh, memory okay, banks gotcha. essentially and if you fill all of those up and you glitch and you can't advance any glitches to a higher level all your glitches are already at level three. Your character glitches out and dies. So there's there's an upper limit to like, if you played a campaign very, very long term, you have to start thinking about when am I going to start buying off glitches, even though version three is really kind of a cool ability. What, yeah. what upgrades? Am I going to take seven different upgrades? That fills up a lot of my slots. Or am I going to take three or four upgrades and do the higher versions of those upgrades? Yeah, I did like that the... Um, there's no like... I always, whenever I read a new game, I always kind of, one of the first, one of the first things I look for is how do I die? It's just kind of, I think it's an interesting thing that people usually do pretty differently with this one. There's no like second chance. There's no saving throws. You're just, you're just dead. Your computer is gone. There's an alternate rule. Um, okay. If you want to do it, if your character gets reduced all the way down to the dead condition on your, uh, on your physical condition track, um, you can choose to have them lose a limb, um, and then you have your own difficulty to deal with because you have to find either deal with not having that limb and suffering consequences of you know penalties to rolls in appropriate situations, or um, going out and making or bartering for um, a new limb. <laughs> All right, so there's a whole lot to talk about as far as like playing. I want to ask you about the playing in the theoretical space of a computer and like lose. I just thinking about a computer program losing a limb is wild. But I will say this: when talking about campaign play, I saw that in this document that there was like a there's this map. It's like just a bunch of squares and different symbols and icons on it. But I started thinking about how cool this would be to play a hex crawl in like just a hex crawl in a computer to me because i just think about tron like them going across this is all right i'm talking like we're not talking classic tron we're talking about the more recent tron with them just kind of the train scene they're going on this train like oh this computer is really big and i'm like i could do a hex crawl on a computer so (laughs) but i want to ask you how do you not only design but how do you run a game in a theoretical space of a computer 
that we don't have physical definition for this. Right. Um, well, the world is, it's a square plane <laughs> with some, okay. with, there are geographical features. There are things that look like mountains and streams and rivers. There's, there's a liquid that is like akin to water, even though your characters don't have to drink, you don't require food or drink. Um, there's, uh, you know, and there's, there's various other features that can manifest on the ground. There's no sun or moon, although there is a light, a cycle of light and dark that happens when like the world would power down and all that sort of thing. Um, and then a lot of the world is just kind of computer video gamey versions of um, like what you might expect to see. There are, there, there's like, you were talking about the big city, that's hub. That's the, the metropolis in the center of the system um, with, um, you know, it's a incredibly tall metropolis with these giant towers and, and platforms and, and walkways that connect the different levels. Um, and there's like strata, there's like a lower, there's like the lower quarter and the middle quarter and the upper quarter where all the richies live or the people that are in charge of stuff live and what, um, and so there's, there's entertainments and there's, you know, that your characters have places where they perform their jobs and they have places where they could trans, you know, go travel. They could, uh, enjoy entertainments. They had homes where they would go to power down cause they require a, a, a like a power down recycle period. Um, and uh, but there, but there's enough of it that's different and alien enough that I think it comes across. Like there's no animals per se. If you see something walking around out there that isn't one of the seven program types, that's a monster. Um, that's, that's like something that is corrupt code. That is, that is some sort of glitch that has been given physical form. Um, and it's now marauding and doing whatever it is, whether it's killing other programs or tearing up, uh, uh, structures, um, or trying to manipulate programs into, you know, corrupting them or whatever. The there so there's so I am a I'm a software engineer in my day job. So there is an element I really want to play this with my game group is also a bunch of electrical and software engineer people too. So I know that I wanted to play this like to a couple sessions, but I know it would just turn into us doing a bunch of inside jokes and getting super meta with things. <laughs> like I'm just like I'm envisioning it now, like how we would have all of the people who we, we like who let security like stuff happen. It's just like a group of people called Java and all this other like I would have a city that's a USB port and just a port city, you know. I think I think there's why a lot not? Of cool. Why not? I, What's I, wrong I do with think that? There is it, and I think it's interesting too. Uh, I like games where there's real life like experiences that you can pull from to insert into your game. I feel like it's easy. It's I don't know. I get a kick out of that kind of stuff. It's cool. <laughs> and it's and it's it's kind of in there too. There's a chapter in the book that's like player guidance that talks about there's some things that you can kind of incorporate into the game that I didn't thread throughout the entire writing of the game because I wasn't sure how many player you know how many groups were really going to want to get into that. But I have a brief discussion about is there a user? Do these people know that they're programs? Do they know they're living inside of a computer? And if they live they're living inside of a computer and they have computer terminals or or pads or other electronic devices that they work on is there a little group of people living inside of that one is user god why isn't okay. god stopping this all right we have orders of clerics now in this game <laughs> okay. you, you, you can you could incorporate that sort of stuff so all right so let's talk about the you mentioned it early on modes of play play modes i've seen this from a few uh 
different games people try experimenting with this whole idea of like levels of play and different things so how do play modes work in your game is it mechanics or is it just story uh the 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 three modes of play are mostly story although if you play a um if you play a version where the where the apocalypse you know the the collapse progresses and continues to progress and doesn't just kind of level out somewhere there's the possibility that your map's going to get all screwed up because as you progress through different um collapse phases uh you make rolls on that eight by eight plane that the whole world exists in and certain things happen to sectors like weird stuff happens two of them get swapped one of them gets destroyed one of them phases out of reality for a while there's you know the world the 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 world itself is dynamic and will change um but it's mostly a question of like what the end game is that said there's also what's referred to in the game as the intensity dial and if you're familiar with the other games that use the system you'll recognize this um juice is you know starts at eight the the track starts at eight checkboxes and gets smaller gets shorter as you go but skill and overload you can change the length of the track depending on what type of a game you want to play do you want if you want the characters to progress more quickly shorten the skill track so that they fill it up faster if you want them to glitch out faster shorten the overload track so they have to deal with glitches more often so you can put you can ostensibly create a game where let's say you want we're going to play um, hard mode where they can stop the apocalypse, but they're not going to progress very fast. So the skill track is going to be eight, but they're going to glitch like crazy and we'll make the overload track four. Okay. So I dig that. You can play that version of the game. Yeah. Okay. All right. I think I, I think I get what you're doing. So what's your favorite thing that you were able to create with our code warriors then? Like you were like, you were making this game. You were like writing. You're like, Oh wow. <laughs> I am very clever. So what was that moment? <laughs> um, I think there's there's some fun in the naming of some stuff. There's a uh, there's a fairly blatant um, Snowpiercer ripoff in the game. Oh, okay. That is um, a a bunch of shuttles that get linked together and they start riding around to try to stay away from the aberrants that are and all the monsters. Um, and then there ends up being like this whole little class warfare going on inside of it. And I named the thing they 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 named it Go To. Um, which if you know very, very old programming languages, you know what go-to means. Yep. Um, so like, yeah, little, little silly stuff like that. Um, there's, there's little nods to Tron and to Mad Max and to the Matrix and the 13th floor and all sorts of uh, science fiction and apocalypse um, media. Um, my favorite little bit of the game is probably the PIX, um, which is one of the program types. PIX PIX, they are um, they are parts of graphics programs and modeling programs, and they're flying cubes with faces on different sides, and they have no legs, and they float, and they have arms that they can manipulate things with. But uh, like, it's probably the most alien of the program types to play because it's just a flying cube with arms and a face. <laughs> oh, it, um, okay, but then. they're they're the you know they're the they're the crafters and the builders and the artists. That's what they were before the uh before the collapse nice okay hold on what is 13th floor i've heard like what is that 13th floor is like a virtual it's a it's a little known virtual reality sort of movie okay it's a movie where where there's where there's people that are in like uh what's the word i'm looking for i'm blanking on the term but yeah they're, they're in a they're they're in a virtual reality and they're not always sure they are you know it's it's the whole the paradox of would we know 
you know, if this was a simulation, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that's okay. the word I was looking for. Simulation. All right. There's some gotcha. of that. There's some of that s- sort of stuff going on. Oh yeah. Are you? Uh, yeah. Are you a replicant? You know that whole idea. All right. Is, so, what is any of this real? Is any of this real? Okay. It's, it's very matrixy. It's the so matrix that, before the matrix. Dude, they don't make them like they used to. All right. So, <laughs> all right. So this is. All right, I want to talk about the Kickstarter. The Kickstarter. Then. All right. This is. We're recording this before the Kickstarter. Uh What's going to be your approach for this one? All right, because I ask you this because previously you've done you've done some print on demand stuff, PDF stuff, uh, always kind of doing things a little bit differently, and you've been talking recently on your Twitter about the about the increasing cost of paper and different things. So yep. for Code Warriors, what's the current plan? The plan out of the gate is um, a print on demand hardcover. If the Kickstarter does well enough, we'll go to offset. Um, okay. You know, if I if I'm going to get enough money to cover the backers and make the book for the backers, but then have additional money that I can put toward getting a good price on an offset print run, so that I can actually have books like nice, clean, sturdy, <laughs> sewn binding, like really, really, really nice books that I can then you know put into distribution and take to conventions and all that sort of thing. I'm reasonably confident that the the offset print run will happen but i am hedging against the possibility that i i won't quite get there so for somebody who doesn't know what is an offset print run an offset print run is um like a print shop printing press print run print on demand are usually um essentially really big really fancy laser printers if you ever see a print-on-demand machine, it's like a gigantic laser printer kind of thing with all this paper that feeds into it. And then there's a whole other piece of equipment that's attached to it that makes a binding and glues it and slaps it all together um, and can do hard covers and soft covers and so forth. Um, and a, a offset print run is on a printing press, which is the more traditional of like you've got four colors of ink, um, cyan, uh, magenta, yellow, and black, you know, CMYK, um, and you send the paper through and it gets printed those four colors one after the other. Um, and it, it creates a much deeper, richer color. Um, and usually with offset print runs, you have a lot more options about what you can do for the cover, um, for special effects for the covers, for interesting little things on the inside, like printed end pages and ribbon bookmarks and, you know, many more, more paper choices. Um, so you just have a lot, you know, you can create a nicer book in general. Um, but you know, print on demand, the, the, the options, they're limited options. So then what kind of, what kind of issues are you seeing right now? Like with, with obviously there's paper shortage, all that stuff, but in the last few weeks, I know you were talking about costs. How, like, for a creator, I, I like to get down into the weeds here. How much, so, so people who know, like, how much have costs gone up for something like this? I got a quote for um, Good Strong Hands to do the hardcover print run. Um, and I got it quoted at, like, five, six, 500, 600, 700, you know, a bunch of different prices. Um, like, with my target being the 600, that's kind of what I'm, like, using as my baseline that I'm looking at. And I got that quote four months ago. I got a new quote just recently in anticipation of the Kickstarter and my cost per unit has gone up over a dollar fifty because of paper cost. Nothing else changed. Paper got more expensive. Um, and I was also informed by my rep that the paper costs will likely go up again in December because the mills 
put out reports about what they're expecting their next year expenses to be like, and they make adjustments to what they're going to be selling their paper at the prices. And the print shops have to plan for that. So then as far as this particular Kickstarter, what are you looking at? I know we're ahead of time and these things can change, but tentatively, what are you looking at for somebody to back this game? What are they, how much are they in at? Um, there's three tiers. $20 for the PDF. Um, and assuming we hit all the stretch goals and make the book as fat as possible, it's going to be a 192-page book. Um, $40 plus shipping um, to a limited number of locations because shipping is also incredibly expensive right now. Um, yep. uh, $40 plus shipping gets you the hardcover book and the PDF. And then, and whatever, and all of these come with whatever other digital stretch goals we have. There will be, a, there's a few things in, in the works. Um, and then $60 gets you the PDF, the hardcover, and six custom D8s in a custom tin um, that, are, that are made for this game. Okay, all right. So RPG nerds love, I mean, you know, that's why you're doing it. They love <laughs> dice. It's like, I am thankfully, thankfully, I am not a dice person where I have the same, I like, I have a plain white set of dice. And so I feel like when I show up at a table and I just bring out my plain white dice, that is me expressing myself that I don't <laughs> care that you all have gemstone dice, but they like those, they, you know, they like them dice. Yep. So, so, all right. Well, this is a little cool. on the niche side because it is specifically 6D8. Um, you know, it's not a, a set of seven, you know. D and D style, every polyhedral die. You know, yeah. it's it's specifically six d eights, um, okay, because that's the most number of dice you'll ever roll in the game. That's sweet. So, uh, yeah, no, I think there's a. This is gonna be. Have you even? Have you never done dice before? Have you? Nope. First time. Ah, uh, okay. Oh, that's cool. Then that's cool. Did you wind up doing cards for capers? Like, yeah, we did uh, print on demand, just stuff through drive. Uh, Card, decks of cards through drive-through cards. You okay, can you can gotcha. buy them now. You can buy them for like ten bucks, I think. But this will be like the the first like extra thing. Will this be the first like extra thing for a Nerdburger Games Kickstarter? Um, that wasn't print on demand. Yes, like this has to be a, okay. like you can't do print on demand dice. Well, you can, you but you, like you got to have a three D no. printer and it takes forever. Um, that would be cool. <laughs> No, this is these. Uh, the dice are being made by Q Workshop. Um, if you pop through my Twitter feed, um, you'll probably find a spot where I've posted a, a picture. Once the Kickstarter is up, you can see them on the on, on the Kickstarter page as well. They're really slick. They're blue and black, nice. um, and there's an Easter egg in them. So, okay, all right, Easter egg in the dice. All right, so then, <laughs> all right, as we wrap up, what is the one last thing you feel like people need to know about Code Warriors? Um, boy. That's a loaded question. I know it really We've is. Talked I love so much. What else do I, we need to know? I um, love asking people this because it's <laughs> like you. What you don't know about your game? You don't know. All right. <laughs> um, I think the 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 thing that I want people to know the most is that this um was this game was a long time coming. It's nearly four years in in development, and it went through iterations where like it's completely changed. It's changed significantly, and it's you know it's our biggest book um in page count it's um it's you know some pretty spectacular artwork it's kind of a big deal 
Like the last time we had a, I had a game that I would consider a big deal like this was two years ago with Good Strong Hands, where that was really nice offset print run, like high end um, production value, like really, really, really gorgeous artwork, like everything up a notch. Um, and this is then the first one since then. This is this is this is big. Yeah, I mean it's it's cool. Like you mentioned, like the the art layout. I mean, even the people we don't people don't talk about the writing as as much as they should. But there's just certain meta elements here that I was really digging. So I think this is gonna be a it's gonna be a good one. So fingers Craig, crossed. Good luck. Good luck. Good luck. You know <laughs> all you. the best. So no, Craig. Thank you so much for joining me. Where can people find you on inter- the internet? Then I'm at Nerdburger Craig on Twitter. Uh, the website is. Uh, nerdburgergames.com all the games are up at drive through rpg however if you're a pdf file um and you're looking at backing the kickstarter make sure to check that out because um most of my games as the, the pdfs are um are add-ons which is a nice way to give people pdfs of games that they've missed and also um help to cushion <laughs> the kickstarter which can you know there's a lot there's a lot to uh, recoup in costs um, and a lot of printing costs and shipping costs because, uh, yeah, printing and shipping. Hmm. Yes, expensive. But also, oh man, I didn't even mention people who like PDFs. Craig like bookmarks and does number clicks in the PDFs and makes them very easy to use. They are actually usable PDFs. So, <laughs> Craig, thank you for that. You're welcome. So, all right, folks. Well, uh, this is Tom. Definitely go check out Code Warriors. We're going to include all those links in our show notes. Uh, and that's it. So, as always, don't forget, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. Thanks, everyone. Goodbye, world. Thanks for listening to the RPG Academy podcast. We do this show out of love for the hobby and the desire to be ambassadors, welcoming more people into this community. All of our website content will always be free to use and utilize, but there are expenses related to the show. And if you enjoy what we do here, then please consider supporting us in some way. You can do so as simply as rating or reviewing us on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice. If you're going to purchase anything through Amazon or DriveThruRPG, consider using our affiliate links first, and then we'll get a small percentage sent back to us. You can do a single direct donation through PayPal using the paypal.me slash the RPG Academy, or consider joining our Patreon campaign at patreon.com slash the RPG Academy. And for a donation as low as $1 a month, you'll get access to lots of extra goodies, including bonus minisodes, invites to monthly one-shot games, one-sheet adventures, and more. Please consider following us on Twitter and Facebook, or join our Discord, where we like to try to keep the conversation going with our fans as best we can, and are always looking to talk and chat more. Or do none of that. Just continue to listen and enjoy our show. Because honestly, that's enough. Thanks. And remember, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. We'll see you next time.
The music used for our intro and outro is Fly a Kite by Spectacular Sound Productions, used under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike License.